Assalamu alaikum everybody, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Welcome to another amazing Saturday session. Um, I hope you all had a wonderful week. Um, of course, I have to start with the incredible khutbah as always. Um, I think we're on like a 30 khutbah streak or something like that, it's incredible. Um, the title is called From Where and From Whom Do You Get Your Islam? And um, is very fascinating because he actually, Sheikh started with reference to an article that I just wanted to point out for people, um, this was something on Middle East Eye, but it's referencing a, a study that just came out by the Institute for Policy and Understanding, and they um, surveyed, I mean, it, the sample size is small, so you know we're not sure like to what extent it really is um, representative. However, as Sheikh pointed out, that the, some of the findings confirm um, some of the things that he's found in other reports, other research, other sources. and. Um, it's about Islamophobia and how Islamophobia over time has remained fairly steady in recent years, but the impact upon Muslims themselves is quite um, significant and staggering and shocking. Um, so one of the things is that nearly one in five Muslims agree with the trope that Muslims are less civilized. Um, they, you know, apparently asked a lot of people from different religious groups different questions about Muslims, like, you know, are they more prone to violence, are they less civilized, um, and things like that. Um, and significantly, Muslims themselves um, answered much higher in agreement with some of these tropes than um, people in other religions. So for example, um, a quarter of, the, of Muslims believe that Muslims are prone to violence, while only 9% of the general public believe this to be true. One-fifth of Muslims agree with the sentiment that Muslims are less civilized than other Americans, although only 5% of the general American public shares this view. And 18% of Muslims agree with the idea that Muslims are partly responsible for acts of violence committed by others. So it clearly is that Islamophobia is, is hitting Muslims much harder than the rest of the population. It's a really interesting study, a really alarming study. And Sheikh goes on in the khutbah to talk about um, some of those factors and, and how that is. And clearly, Islamophobes um, have invested a lot of time, energy, and money into their jihad, as we would call it. They have a very active jihad to convince Muslims um, to, you know, really um, have doubt about their religion. And um, and we have to ask ourselves too, because that when you when you follow the money and you see like, okay who's investing in a lot of these tropes, a lot of it ties back to Saudi, UAE, um, you know, a lot of these, these players that also fund our Islamic schools, our Islamic colleges, um, people where, you know, we're learning or getting our Islam from. So you really do have to ask yourself from where and from whom are you getting your Islam? And, um, and then he reminds us in Surah Al-Tawbah that, you know, in times like these, do you, you know, naturally sort of retract to only care about yourself, your family, your friends, your nationality, the things that are just pertinent to you to avoid all of that darkness and ugliness? Or do you step up and, and actually engage in jihad, you know, standing up for your faith? And you, it's really hard to do that when you have doubt. So what is the answer, of course, from where we're standing? Clearly, education, reconnection with the Quran, and so forth and so on. So it's a really, really powerful Khutbah, um, I, of course, um, always encourage you to, to watch or, you know, read the summary, um, or inshallah, it'll end up um, in probably Prophet's Pulpit, Volume 3, so um, inshallah, many ways to, to get at that, but it's a very interesting study, 
um, that people can can look for. And let me just plug again: we we put these articles on um, an Asuli News site. Um, it's a separate website that a volunteer has put together to capture all of these articles that are referenced um, in the khutbas and in other things too. So it's a really valuable resource if you're looking for, you know, what is it exactly that we're citing to, and what is it that we're reading that's feeding um, a lot of the the khutbas and halakas and so forth. Um, so that was it. I wanted to also share um, in my weekly email, I pointed out that, you know, we now have completed 83 suras of the 114. And interestingly, um, you know, before we did Project Illumin, um, as I mentioned, we've done line by line, um, the line by line approach. Um, and so Sheikh in that approach had previously covered 26 short suras as well as Al-Fatiha in the line by line. So my trivia question is, um, taking all of that into account, which four suras um, have we not touched either in the line by line or the Project Illumin? And I did actually have one person who answered that very correctly. Um, so the answer is um, Surah 5, Al-Ma'idah, Surah 9, Al-Tawbah, Surah 48, Al-Fat, and Surah 60, Al-Mumtahina. And SubhanAllah, tonight we are going to be covering Surah 48, Al-Fat. So very excited for that. Um, and I just also wanted to say, um, just uh, to go back to our Share a Friend campaign, um, where you can tell us if there's someone that you believe should get a copy of the Prophet's Pulpit. Um, we just provide us with a name, a mailing address, an email address, and we'll be sure to send out a copy, thanks to the very kind and generous um, donor that we have that is really committed to getting the Prophet's Pulpit into, you know, the hands of every thinking Muslim, every Muslim who, you know, would want, who cares about beauty and justice um, and ethics um, and the future of Islam. So that's a really um, beautiful gift that we've received. Um, I wanted to just emphasize, I previously had said this is, he wanted to get this copy into everyone's hands in America, but actually, let me correct that, um, we actually will send it out to any place in the world. Um, so we've, I've gotten a lot of requests for people who have friends in the UK and Australia and Pakistan, um, and absolutely those um, everywhere is covered. So just feel free to send us that um, information, and then we also would be happy to send you a gift for recommendations your name or if you don't yourself don't have a copy yet let me know we can send you a paperback an ebook a mug or a t-shirt um, so it's a win-win all around and then lastly if you haven't had a chance yet to um, watch the um, really wonderful convert conversation that Joe and our friend Witski and myself had several weeks back um, I really highly recommend it and to share it with other um, converts that you know um, I wanted to share a really beautiful comment that I got in response um, to that. Um, he, our, our friend, said, one thing I noticed which you guys didn't mention was the ease of portability of my Christian theological conceptual heritage as a convert, even though I had lapsed into agnosticism and atheism prior to converting. The synergy between Christian morals and ethics with those of my new religion was total and without perturbation. I found myself on familiar ground, but with so much firmer roots due to the sound logic and robustness of Islam, a feeling akin to returning home after a long and arduous journey. Um, he said, I, the key thing I thought which is necessary in this day and age is to try to convey the comfort and tranquility experienced after conversion, how natural it feels rather than alienating, which is really, really beautiful. So. Um, you know, it's like these, these sort of really surprising conversations that help people have a window into why people convert and that, you know, very spectacular people choose to convert to Islam today. That was really the goal of this conversation. So I hope that if you haven't had a chance to watch it, that you, you certainly will. 
Um, so with that, um, I'm just so excited to continue on this journey of education and enlightenment. So grateful, Sheikh, for um, you know opening the Quran to all of us in a way that we really just cannot get anywhere else. And so I'm so excited to continue on with our 84th surah, Surah Al-Fat. Thank you so much for joining us. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen, wa subhanallah al-aliyil azim. اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على الحبيب المصطفى محمد المرسل رحمة للعالمين خاتم الأنبياء والرسل أجمعين وعلى آله الأطهار الميامين وعلى أصحابه المختارين وعلى من اتبعه بإحسان إلى يوم الدين اللهم اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري وحل العقدة من لساني يفقه قولي يا رب العالمين أوكي سو إن شاء الله Tonight, um, we talk about Surah Al-Fatiha. Um, there are, uh, Surah Al-Fatiha is, um, is a miraculous surah in, in, in several respects. Um, and this is not a new realization. I mean, it, 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 throughout Islamic history, it was understood as a, a surah that, in fact, predicts things that will occur in the future and talks about them with absolute confidence in the context of delivering a very critical and essential message. Um, Surah Al-Fatih was revealed in the sixth Hijri year and um, unlike many of the other Surahs that we've talked about, uh, you don't have a great deal of disagreement about the year of revelation. And that is because Surah Al-Fatih itself revolves around a particular historical set of events that take place in the, towards the end of the sixth Hijri year, sixth year after the Hijrah to Medina. Um, you get a number of reports that say that it was the 111th surah in order of revelation around the 110th around the 11th most say the 111th and even some reports that even more specifically say that it was revealed after Surah Al-Jum'ah uh, and right before Surah Al-Ma'idah. Um, I don't know if it was revealed right, right before, uh, right after Surah Al-Jum'ah and right before Surah Al-Ma'idah as is claimed in certain reports. So for instance, it is for reasons that will become uh, clear late in later halakat, inshallah, uh, 
it is most definitely that the surah revealed after her fath was surah at-tawbah and not surah al-ma'idah um again for reasons that will would be clear inshallah uh, when we get to the surah but what we what we do know regardless so i'm so what i'm saying is don't put too much credence on the chronology of revelation uh, that is reported uh, in some sources, but we most, with great deal of confidence, near certainty, if not actual certainty, we know that Surat al-Fatih was revealed in the sixth um, Hijra, and that after al-Fatih, uh, Surah Al-Mumtahina, and after Surah Al-Mumtahina, um, Surah Al-Tawbah, and then Al-Ma'idah. Okay. And the historical events surrounding the revelation of Surah Al-Fatih are fairly well established. Um, If you recall, the Battle of the Trench is behind us, and it is a major victory. And at the time after the, the, the moral impact of this victory upon the surrounding neighbors to Medina, and the various Arab tribes that uh, it, it will not be, you know, the, the message gets across that it's not going to be an easy thing to exterminate Muslims. And that, in fact, um, um, that even Quraysh, is you know the, the 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 Muslim reality, if you will, uh, is not simply going to be a temporary phenomena or something that's just going to be dissipate or disappear. And this allows the Prophet والسلام, to start talking to various tribes about possible alliances with Muslims. In other words, to, to try to negotiate some type of um, treaty of mutual support or mutual defense. Uh, so, and for instance, that, you know, tribes like um, the tribe of Ghifar or uh, Muzayna, or um, Juhayna, Aslam, Ashja, Daylam. Uh, all of these are tri all of these are tribes that surround Medina, between Medina and Quraysh. After the Battle of the Trench, whether the the, the Prophet ﷺ initiates contact or they initiate contact, because some of them they initiated contact. 
And in every one of these situations, they sign if some type of uh, a treaty with uh, Medina of mutual defense. If we help you, if you're attacked, you help us if, if we're attacked. And the, in, in most of these types of alliances around the sixth Hijri um, year, Muslims also agree to send a group of um, teachers that uh, I mean, proselytize Islam in these tribes. And the sixth Hijri year is marked with at least whether real conversions or nominal conversions, because you know we have tribes that the, the chief of the tribe, uh, like for as for instance, um, um, Johanna, uh, where the chief of the tribes sort of declares the tribe a Muslim tribe, but what that exactly meant is not clear. I mean, to what, to what extent they, they were actually embracing Islam in, in the full sense, rather just than embracing an, a form of political alliance. Anyway, so the sixth Hijri year is marked with, by an increasing number of conversions to Islam and an increased sense of presence and security for the Muslim state. Uh, the, the Muslim state emerges from the Battle of the Trench uh, as a strong political entity. Okay. Now, you remember from our discussion um, of, um, I'm blanking out, what was the name of the surah? The last surah. Al-Hajj. You remember from our discussion of surah Al-Hajj that the doctrinal position that Mecca is the sacred space of Tawheed, of monotheism, and that it is the father of the prophets, Ibrahim salam. And so although Mecca is controlled by Quraysh. Muslims are keen on communicating the point that we are not going to relinquish our claims over the Haram. And we are not going to uh, recognize your absolute sovereignty over the haram.
all the reports say that the prophet reports that he had a dream, a, a more of a vision, a, a, a it's, it's a, you know, a, a normative vision that Muslims visit Mecca and perform Umrah and that he takes us as, and that they, they are able to do so and do so safely. And so he announces that in fact, this is what they are commanded to do, is to go to Mecca, not as fighters, but as pilgrims to perform Umrah. And the dream that the Prophet has, والسلام, is in the months of Dhul-Qadah, which according to Arab customs, Arab customs that Islam confirms or affirms that Dhul-Qadah is one of the sacred months in which fighting is presumptively not permitted. You can only fight defensively, but you cannot uh, initiate attack. So, A, the practice of Arabs all over is that uh, they can visit the Kaaba. They, although Quraysh is the custodian of um, uh, the Kaaba, but the customs of Arabia is that Quraysh will not prevent anyone from performing pilgrimage to the Kaaba, uh, you know, as long as they are not disrupting Quraysh's rules. And this has been going on for centuries. So Muslims, assert that they have the right to visit the Kaaba just like any other pilgrims. Part of the rules is that you, if you are coming in peace, so you, you don't do your pilgrimage or you don't visit the Kaaba with weapons. And so, and this is exactly what the Prophet ﷺ says, is that we were going, we're going to go do a Umrah, we're going to, to uh, uh, going to pilgrimage to the Kaaba without weapons and wearing ihram clothes, which are, you know, clothes um, you can't do combat in, non-combative clothes, if you will. And also, we are going to take with us animals, that we will sacrifice. And the meat of these animals will go to the needy, uh, where, whoever they may be and wherever they may be. So in other words, we're going to sacrifice the animals and then who, whoever is needy will come and we will distribute these animal, the, this meat to. This is known as the hadji. So, all of these communicate to Quraysh that we are not coming in, in any aggressive capacity. We are coming simply to visit the Kaaba. Now, Quraysh probably understood 
the ideological implications of this. Yes, it's true that Quraysh has never prevented anyone from visiting the Kaaba if they come unarmed um, with peaceful intentions. But Quraysh is aware that the way this is going to sound to the rest of Arabia is that Muslims have gotten their way, is that this signals a weakness on part of Quraysh in some form or shape. But you see, this is why this is exactly, precisely why this is so, such a spectacular situation. Of course, the Prophet ﷺ understood that the political implications of this pilgrimage to Mecca. And precisely because of the political implications, this is precisely why this pilgrimage was a test. Because if you think of the political implications, you'd say, well, there is every possibility that what Quraysh will do is that it will slaughter all the pilgrims and, you know, sort of balance out its political options and say, you know what, let's slaughter them and the blowback, the, the sort of shame of having slaughtered pilgrims, we can handle that. Um, so, so why did Muslims join the pilgrimage, if that's the case? Because they trusted in what the Prophet said, in the Prophet's dream. I dreamt that we went on pilgrimage and came back safely. This is precisely why when the Prophet ﷺ went to the tribes that he had formed alliances with, like Juhayna um, and Ghifar and Muzayna and so on, the, the Prophet ﷺ said, we are going to go to pilgrimage in Mecca. And it will add to our safety if you guys come to the pilgrimage with us because then Mecca is far less likely to slaughter us. It's one thing if you just slaughter the the the, the Qurayshis who left Quraysh and did the Hijrah to Medina. So it's you're slaughtering basically your your natives who betrayed you. But it's quite another if you are going to slaughter not just those who betrayed you, but you're going to slaughter Arabs who were allied to Muslims from significant tribes like Muzayna or um, Juhayna and so on. Or the tribe of Islam and 
But here's the thing. These tribes declined to join the pilgrimage. Why did they decline to join the pilgrimage? Because they said, all we have to go on is your dream. Well, you can rely on the dream if you believe Muhammad is a prophet. Who knows his talk, what he's talking about? But if you have doubts about his role as a prophet, you'd say, this is a suicide mission. You're crazy. You are going to... You, you, it wasn't that long ago that you had the Battle of the Trench. And in the Battle of the Trench, you embarrassed Mecca. And now you're going without weapons, wearing your ihram, literally extending your necks out to them for them to slaughter you if they wish. This is crazy. This is a suicide mission. No thank you. We're not going to join. So all these tribes, Zifar, Muzayna, Suelam, and so on, declined to join. And... The camp, the, the habitual dissenting camp that the Quran refers to as the hypocrites, not just declined to join, but predicted that this is going to be the slaughter of Muslims. That all of you guys who are following Muhammad, you're going to go and you're going to be slaughtered. In addition, this was a real test to your conviction and to your bravery and to your commitments. You're going to drop everything and go on this journey that looks like a suicide mission. Um, you know, people have children, people have businesses. People have lives. But you're going to drop all of that. And consequently, there was a number of people who were even muhajirun, people who migrated, converted and migrated, who chickened out, who ultimately, when it came for the time for, for action, they made excuses and went to the Prophet and said, oh, you know, I have my, my special circumstance. I, I have my family. There are problems going on with my family. There's this going on with my children. There's this going on with my parents. There's this going on with my business. They cited various personal excuses not to join in the pilgrimage. And as was the habit of the Prophet ﷺ, and to this point, the Prophet keeps doing this, and he's not, uh, the Qur'an doesn't come and correct him. The Qur'an doesn't come and blame him for doing this. It, the Qur'an doesn't do this until later. Later on, we'll find God coming in and saying, enough, stop, giving, stop forgiving these people. Stop saying it's okay. 
So the prophet, as usual, doesn't tell them no problem. He simply doesn't respond, but nods. Indicating what? Indicating I'm disappointed in you, but I'm not going to tell you I'm disappointed in you. I know, I see through what you're doing. You're being self-centered. You're being about your own life. But this is I'm leaving this between you and God. So I'm not going to tell you that you're being X, Y, and Z. I'm simply not going to respond. And as a result, these people don't join. This is an important context to this surah because the it's critical to the message of the surah itself so those who go out on the pilgrimage are about 1500 or so now, if you read your history carefully, you would know that, well, those who would be eligible to go out on this pilgrimage, meaning the number of Muslims in Medina who are adults or of, of age, is much larger than that. And the so that 1,500, some say 1,400, some say 1,500, anyway, that go out on this pilgrimage is the, the, the people who said, you know, the, the prophet said, this is what we're doing, so this is what we're doing. Those on the suicide mission, if you will. They didn't think of it as a suicide mission. They actually believed that because the Prophet said, I saw the vision, and we went and we performed Hajj or performed Umrah, and we came back, that's what they expected will happen. They didn't expect to be slaughtered, and they didn't expect to be turned away. Now, of course, this is setting, this is setting the framework for another test. Because although the vision was that we went and we performed Umrah successfully and we returned safely, this is not what's going to happen. And in this is, is another fitna. You said we went and we were able to do the Umrah, but that's not what ultimately happens. And if you're weak in faith, if you're weak in faith, you're going to say, the prophet failed us. So, as I said, they go, they march, and they send emissaries to Mecca and say, we are not carrying any weapons. We are wearing clothes of ihram. We brought animals to slaughter and, and in charity, distribute the meat of the animals to your poor and needy. 
and we will be we will do our business in Mecca one or two days at most and leave peacefully the reaction of Mecca was outrage and extreme anger and there is a discussion in Mecca whether to this is a good opportunity to attack Muslims and exterminate them and kill the Prophet of Islam once and for all the discussion in Mecca itself is very interesting because you still you still have in Mecca those who have strong notions of honor in battle and slaughtering people who are wearing the clothes of pilgrimage and not wearing not carrying weapons who came and sent an emissary to tell you to seek permission to come um, is very dishonorable and this debate goes on in, in Mecca and ultimately Mecca decides there is no way we're going to allow them to in fact have their way this year or just showing up and sending us these emissaries um, but Mecca also knows now Mecca from Mecca's perspective or Quraysh's perspective this puts us in a tough position if we slaughter them we've committed an act of great dishonor I mean the, the, look, look at the irony that 1400 years ago slaughtering unarmed people um, it, it would be something that would that you would shame you till for to the rest of your life people would lose complete respect for you for the rest of the, your life 1400 years later we see in Syria and in Egypt and in Yemen people who are slaughtered unarmed all the time and and people are Muslim and they feel no sense of shame you, know, you you still have Egyptians to this day who find no shame in saying we support Sisi although they know that Sisi slaughtered unarmed defenseless people in Rabah and you know they have we have no problem saying we're Muslim and fasting and praying w- with that type of ethic I mean if it, it in part also it explains to you why Allah revealed Islam amongst those people because you needed a moral and ethical grounding that is essential for people who are carrying a message a, a basic sense of morality anyway so first the Prophet sends one emissary which Quraysh heckles and um, refuses to talk to and then the, the Prophet sends Uthman ibn Affan and Uthman ibn Affan comes from an honorable family and 
Quraysh cannot treat Uthman ibn Affan the way they treated the first emissary. His, I can't, his name escapes me now, but one of the, the companions, but his, his name escapes me. Um, okay. So as Uthman ibn Affan is negotiating with Quraysh about this Umrah, and Quraysh says, no way we're going to agree to Umrah this year. There is an important incident is that the negotiations between Osman bin Affan and Quraysh take longer than expected. And there is a lot of back and forth, although unfortunately history didn't preserve the back and forth. So, you know, exactly what was, what, who said what wasn't preserved. But it takes significantly longer to the point that Muslims waiting outside of Mecca, having sent Uthman ibn Affan as an emissary, and there's no news coming back about, they start thinking that Quraysh had betrayed Uthman and has killed him. And there's a rumor that spreads that, in fact, that that's what happened. Upon, upon once that rumor spreads that Quraysh had, had murdered Osman, the pilgrims themselves believe, well, if you've killed the emissary, the next thing that's going to happen is that you are going to show up and slaughter the rest of us. And so the Prophet ﷺ, under an acacia tree, uh, the, the, the tree became famous because it was mentioned in the Quran, calls for a bay'ah, calls for a pledge known, which became known or famous as Bay'at al-Rudwan. Okay, if they've killed Osman, that means the dishonorable thing for us to do if they killed our emissary, the dishonorable thing to, be, to do is to run. So we are not going to run. We are going to take a pledge that we, once they show up to slaughter us, we will fight all to the death with whatever little weapons that we have. Although we don't have military gear, we don't have horses, we are not prepared, but it's a matter of honor. So the pledge you are giving me this bay'ah, known as bay'at al-Rudwan, is the pledge that you will fight alongside me as the prophet to the death. And the vast majority give him that pledge um, will come to, uh, to the few who don't. But anyway... So the vast majority give him that pledge, and they, so they have the intent of fighting till the death, even it is if it's the last stand. 
Thereupon, after the pledge is taken, shortly after, whether hours or a night and a day, as some reports say, um, or some reports say two days, Uthman ibn Affan re-emerges. So it turns out that he's safe. And he informs them that the negotiations with Quraysh is that they cannot enter the haram this year, but they may do so the next year. And why Quraysh says, well, if you are going to visit the haram, we want the opportunity to empty literally empty Mecca so that you do not have the opportunity to mingle with anyone because we are afraid that if you mingle with people you're going to influence them to embrace Islam so we are going to empty next by next year we're going to empty the place so you can come in for one day or two days according to some reports do your business and leave And Uthman ibn Affan agreed, you know, agreed to that in his negotiations. The part of the treaty that is most controversial, as is well known in the Sira, is that Mecca wants an unequal non-reciprocal terms that if someone some reports say someone under guardianship if someone who is under guardianship converts to Islam and from Mecca and goes to join the Prophet in Medina that Muslims would not accept him would not allow him to join, would turn him away. But if someone is a Muslim in Medina and wants to leave Islam and return to Mecca, that he would be allowed to do so. More likely, the, the under-guardianship reports are inaccurate. Rather, what is probably more accurate is that the, the terms of the agreement was if anyone converts from Mecca, man or woman or child, and wants to join Muslims in Medina, that they not, would not be allowed to do so. But if anyone from Muslim, the Muslims in Medina wants to join Mecca, that they would be allowed to do so. And... You know, the, the narratives usually focus on the role of Omar ibn al-Khattab. That Omar ibn al-Khattab in particular was outraged by these terms. But in reality, I mean, when you... there It was... Those who went on this pilgrimage truly believed that they will be able to visit this year 
And that's the vision. That's the dream. And the stress of thinking that Osman was killed, the stress of thinking that they will be slaughtered next, and the stress of this pledge, a pledge of fighting to the death, and then coming after a series of victories against Mecca, why are we accepting unequal terms? Why are we accepting terms in which those who want to leave Islam are allowed to so, do so, but those who want to join Islam wouldn't be allowed to do so? And the Prophet position that this is precisely what we should do, these are the terms that we should agree to, was incomprehensible, especially to the group of people that just a few days ago had taken a pledge to die. You know, if, if we are willing to die, then why are we now taking, accepting terms that seem um, undignified? Now, add to that, this will all come to in the, in the context of the surah. Add to this that the scribe for the treaty was uh, Ali radiallahu anhu, and the negotiators on behalf of Mecca um, were flippant and impolite. So as some of you or all of you might already know that, for instance, and we'll come to the details of this later, but, uh, you know, when uh, they start, uh, they try to write Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim at the beginning of the treaty, the Quraysh negotiators object and say, we don't, you know, that's a Muslim way of describing God as the most merciful and most compassionate. No, we we just say Bismillahum in the name of God. That's it. Uh, not the merciful, compassionate, because that's Islamic. Uh, they refuse to describe Muhammad in the treaty as the prophet of God, but just say Muhammad ibn Abdullah. And so in every as, as in, in this treaty, Ali being described, and they say, no, don't write Muhammad, the prophet of God, write Muhammad ibn Abdullah, and Ali objects, and the Prophet says, no, just go ahead. So, now they have been turned back, they've concluded this treaty, that for 10 years, for 10 years, there is a truth. The truth is no hostility and no violence between Mecca and Muslims. And the part that we've talked about, that who, you know, who gets to join and, and so on. If someone apostates from the Muslim sides wants to go to back to Mecca, that's no problem. But if someone converts in, in, in Mecca and converts and wants to join Muslims in Medina for 10 years, that would be a problem. And initially the treaty covered men and women as well, which you know, would be 
is a is a problem. Um, and the treaty also extended to the typical typical structures in Arabia at the time is that if you it, it wouldn't be just Quraysh but it would be Quraysh and any tribe that has a pact with Quraysh so and the same thing for Muslims any Muslims and any tribe that has a pact with Muslims which meant what which meant that if one if, if if someone converts from these tribes and wants to join Muslims in Medina, the, the tribes that have a pact with Quraysh, they wouldn't be allowed to do so. So it seemed like the terms which seemed extremely so now here's the question. You've been turned back after you've won these spectacular victories against the Qureshis, you've signed a treaty of non-aggression, no war, for 10 years. All treaties back then, by the way, uh, have would, would have a date, expiration date. Till today, that's, by the way, also the practice. But the, the pra- the, now, the, all treaties, unless otherwise specified, are assumed to last for 99 years. So even the UN charter is dated at 99 years, and then it would be have to be renewed. But that the 10 years was specified in this treaty, the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, as it became known. And this this thing about conversions. Did this feel like a victory? Most certainly, most certainly, it didn't feel like a victory. Maybe if you're you're charitable, you'd say it wasn't a defeat, but it wasn't a victory either. If you didn't like Muslims, if you were part of the hypocrites, um, it looked like Muslims didn't get their way, didn't perform the pilgrimage, signed a treaty that didn't look advantageous. And so this is precisely why this long introduction is so you understand why it is so significant that the beginning of Surah Al-Fatih says, "Inna fatahna laka fathan mubina." That the surah comes and starts out by saying, "Inna fatahna laka fathan mubina." What is the first thing that the surah says? This has been a manifest victory. Surah Al-Fatih is revealed after the conclusion of the events that I just described and they are on their way back to Medina. The Prophet Muhammad 
the, the narrations is that, you know, he goes into, starts sweating profusely, and he, and Surat al-Fatih is revealed in one big swoop, in, you know, like, just all at one time. And the first thing is, this is a manifest victory. So it is not surprising when we read, for instance, among the many traditions, that people started coming, commenting upon the revelation of Surah Al-Fatih. مَا هَذَا بِفَتْحِ لَقَدْ صَدُّونَ عَنِ الْبَيْتِ وَمَنَعُونَ this was no manifest victory. All that happened is that they turned us away and forced us to sign bad, bad terms. Now, the, the, the Prophet responds to this, and the translation would be difficult, but he says, فَقَالَ الرَّسُولَ عَلَيْهِ الصَّلَاةُ وَالسَّلَامُ بَلْ هُوَ أَعْظَمُ الْفُتُوحِ وَقَدْ رَضَى الْمُشْرِكُونَ أَنْ يَدْفَعُوكُمْ بِالْرَاحِ وَيَسْأَلُوكُمُ الْقَضِيَّةِ وَيَرْغَبُوا إِلَيْكُمْ فِي الْأَمَانِ وَرَقَدْ رَأُوا مِنْكُمْ مَا يَكْرَهُونَ So the Prophet's response to this is he tells him, no, you don't understand. This was the greatest victory. Because because what results from this is that the non-believers are going to be forced to inter interact with you in peace. And of course, what, as it turns out, so for instance, there is a report from Zohari that says, there was no fatah or lam yakun fatah azam min sulh al-Hudaybiyah wa dhalika anna al-mushrikeen akhtalatu bil-muslimin fasam'u kalamahum fatamakkan al-islam fi qulubihim wa aslam fi salas sinin khalq kathir So what he's saying is is that there, in fact there was no greater victory than the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. Because, why? Because it allowed for Muslims to interact and mix with non-Muslims. And when that happened, non-Muslims had an opportunity to listen to what Muslims were saying or to receive the message from Muslims. And as a result, in the three years in which the Treaty of Hudaybiyah stayed in effect, before it was breached by Quraysh. And, and more people converted to Islam in these three years than the entire Medina period, the six years after Hijrah. And in some reports that more people converted to Islam in these three years of peace than the entire period of revelation, the entire 16 years of revelation. Now, you need to posit this, because again, if Muslims were writing their own history, think about how many, you know, 
these reports that I was talking about on the khutbah yesterday and the reports that Grace mentioned about Islamophobia and its impact on Muslim kids, or Muslims generally, not just kids. How many Muslims understand the implications of this? If more people entered Islam in three years of peace, than the entire existence of uh, than what than than people have entered Islam the entire existence, especially so. That would and in fact, so many people were converting to Islam that Quraysh became very unsettled and threatened and realized that peace with this people is dangerous. Because as we'll talk about, Quraysh itself was becoming Islamized. The reason that there was no fighting, Quraysh was conquered without a battle, without a fight, is because the elite in Quraysh understood that already more than half of the population of Quraysh had converted to Islam. They had, they, their, their internal front was extremely weak because they converted and stayed in Mecca. They converted and remained. And so you effectively, Quraysh, when Quraysh was conquered, it was just recognizing the sociological reality that has altered and that 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 is Quraysh had become Muslim through conversions. If Muslims wrote their own history, they would understand that this allows you to fully understand the nature of the battles of the so-called Ghazawat at the time of the Prophet and in what sense when we say that these were defensive wars because when Allah says in the Quran, in Allah la that Allah doesn't love, Allah doesn't accept those who are commit aggression. You've been conditioned to think that yeah, Allah says this, but Allah doesn't really mean it. And so it's possible that the, the Prophet was going around committing aggression in the battles that he fought. It's impossible. This is where, where where true faith comes in. It's like the faith of those people in in the in the action of the prophet. If you truly have faith in what the Quran says, that Allah doesn't permit aggression. That even Allah says, "Don't let the injustice of others draw you into being." into committing aggression. Then that would conclude, that would that would resolve the historical issue for you. That's that's if you had true faith. Then it would be impossible to interpret the historical narrative in which the Prophet, or especially the Prophet is committing acts of aggression. 
then you would search your own history to understand the history in light of the Quranic revelation. But we don't write our own history. We don't narrate our own history. All our modern narrations of our own history is derivative. And because it is derivative, it is broken and has no pride, has no dignity. If Muslims in three years during the Treaty of Hudaybiyah had more converts and without exception everyone describes that the Treaty of Hudaybiyah turned out to be a great victory because of the number of people who've entered Islam, then what incentive do Muslims have to wage battles of aggression? The logical thing is that then, in fact, the incentive is the quite the opposite. The incentive is to do business, trade, and Islam is spreading that way far more efficiently. But that's if we wrote our history. And if we, if we, anyway. So let's go back. So when the, the first revelation in Surah Al-Fatih, this was a manifest victory. As I said, many Muslims were saying, how was this a manifest victory? They didn't know what's going to happen. They, they were just marching back, going after the conclusion of the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, marching back, feeling pretty lousy, because we have many reports about how badly they felt, that they were turned away, that the, the, and knowing that the critics, the dissenters, are going to say, well, you know, the Prophet had this dream, what happened to that dream? You didn't get to, to do your Umrah, you've come back without Umrah, and you've entered into this treaty which uh, is non-reciprocal and so on. Okay. So, first, Surah Al-Fatih declares this situation a manifest victory. So, and again, I'll just use it. So that God might show God's forgiveness to all your faults, past as well as future, and thus bestow upon you the full measure of God's blessings. I guide you to on a straight path. So, clearly, Allah is telling the Prophet you followed my orders. In fact, you followed my orders. As uncomfortable, I mean, imagine the role of the Prophet He gets orders from God which he believes that they are going to do a Umrah this year, and, and it turns out that that's not what's going to, what happens. So it's embarrassing. It's uncomfortable for the Prophet. Second, he is told by God 
to enter into this treaty and he knows that his own people are opposed to entering into this treaty, another uncomfortable position. And this after thinking that the take the Bayat al-Rudwan, that pledge in which the Prophet thinks, okay, this is the end. And Allah comforts his Prophet by saying, you followed my orders. And of course, by the way, you know, the, the, the most reported or the most common set of reports about this ayah that, my, that Allah forgives your past deeds and your future deeds is that it, all the reports that describe the Prophet as praying until his feet swell, that every constantly he would keep praying until his feet swell. And they, would say, and they would cite this ayah and say, but God has given your sins past and present. And he would say, shouldn't I be a grateful human being? So the Prophet's intense prayers were out of gratitude, not out of repentance and not out of fear, but out of gratitude and love to pray until your feet swell um, okay, then Allah reminds the believers, who has bestowed inner peace upon the hearts of believers, so that seeing that gods are all the forces of heavens and earth, and that God is all-knowing, truly wise, they might grow yet more firm in their faith. So it's not just that this is a victory, but Allah claims authorship or takes authorship of this victory. This victory, what you don't realize is a victory right now, but it is a victory. It is a fatah, and a fatah mubin, a clear manifest victory, required a great deal of bravery and steadfastness. It required people to say, we're going to go on what appears logically like a suicide mission. It required to take a bayat al-Rudwan where you in fact pledge to fight till the death because Muslims are one and you believe that one of you has been betrayed. And it required obedience to the revelation of the Prophet even when that revelation was not uh, in accord with what you like or you want. It required, because of the conviction and the strength of these believers, Allah rewarded them with tranquility. 
So, note here that he bestowed, God bestowed peace upon the hearts of the believers. This tranquility, this peace under these difficult, stressful circumstances so that they can be reminded so they can internalize walillahi not just so that they, they can increase in faith liyazdadu iman and ma imanihim that their, their faith will increase but to be reminded walillahi junudu samawati wal ard we've encountered before that only Allah knows Allah's soldiers and here to internalize that existence itself is as if soldiering for God God works through God's creation it is only when you lose sight of that and you think that your will is triumphant or that your will must trump all is when things go awfully wrong. If you understand the role of your will in creation, then things might go right. Okay. And Allah then sort of calls it as as it is. Calls it as it is by noting al-munafiqina wal-munafiqat wal-mushrikina wal-mushrikat al-zannina billahi zanna su' Allah says, I know, this is, I'm talking about verse 6, I know about hypocrites, men and women, those who claim to be believers, but they're not believers, men and women, who upon hearing of the prophet's dream said, we don't believe. Or those who upon realizing that it's not going to work out the way the prophet said it's going to work out through that dream, abandoned and left and didn't didn't join Bayat al-Radwan, <clears throat> but said, <clears throat> what? Oh, it's clear that, you know, this is not going to end up in a pilgrimage. We're turning back. And Allah tells him, I know who you are. I know you're hypocrites. I know, in fact, you're not real believers. Why? Why? What's the translation? Muhammad Asad translates it as all who entertain evil thoughts about God. It's not entertain evil thoughts about God. Zannina billahi zannasu is that it's literally they doubt God. They don't have certitude. 
they, they don't have they, they they really although they they pretend to believe they say they believe but they don't trust so Allah says to them you don't trust me well I don't trust you either it's reciprocal you doubt me I doubt you but here's the thing my doubt of you is going to end with you in hellfire you can doubt me all you want you can you know play your 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 have your little psychological fits or pissy fits or whatever it is where you you say you know i'm oh i'm, I'm disappointed i i have a i'm struggling with my face what is this and so on go ahead but I know where it's going to take you at the end. There's going to be punishment. But do not pretend that you, with your doubt, can ever be soldiers of God. وَلِلَّهِ جُنُودُ السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ وَاللَّهُ عَزِيزًا حَكِيمًا God knows God's soldiers in the heavens and the earth. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reminds us by saying, listen, this prophet was sent as a witness, as a bearer of good tidings, the good news as the, 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 the word Injil it derives from the Greek that means the good news, the, the, the New Testament. The idea of prophets as good news is not a Christian idea. It's an it's a old Abrahamic tradition. But as also bearers of good news, they are also warners. They are they, they're, they're informing you about the reality. The good news of God's mercy and compassion and warn you also of accountability and responsibility. And that, they, and that this prophet is a witness, bears witness upon your faith. How do you relate to the teachings of the Prophet ﷺ is the way that there is prophetic witnessing upon your faith. And I will show you this in a second, but just hold on. Okay. لِتُؤْمِنُوا بِاللَّهِ وَرَسُولِهِ وَتُعَذِّرُوهُ وَتُوَكِّرُوهُ وَتُسَبِّحُوهُ بُكْرَةً وَأَصِيلًا This is, this is the more, one of the most, just try to take this ayah and do dhikr with it. Sit for 20 minutes and just repeat it and see the results. Just try it out yourself. Sit, I've done it for an hour. You just, this ayah, and repeat it for an hour and see the results. But, okay, so the translation is, uh, uh, so that for you, this is uh, nine, okay. Uh, 
so that you might believe in God and God's apostle and might honor God. This is Muhammad's essence. Honor God and revere God and extol God limitless glory from morning till evening. لتؤمنوا بالله ورسوله وتعزروه وتعزروه um, it is yes it's honor it's to honor honor something but the, the, the expression is not to uh, um, is literally to honor but تعزروه is when you honor something by giving it all the benefit of all doubt. So you could honor someone but not follow what they say 100%. That's tawqir. So, you know, you respect them, you honor them, you treat them well. But, you know, there might be a certain level of in which you would doubt their judgment. That's tawqir. Tuhaziru is where you have no doubt as to their judgment. And it is not just God. I believe, I agree with the interpreters that say that the, the expression tuhaziru wa tuwakkiru wa tusabbihu it is, of course, we, we praise God, not, we don't do tasbih to the Prophet Muhammad, but that it is our attitude towards the commands that come from Allah and the Prophet. At-Tazir wa tawqir especially it's like, put it, put it this way, by, by failing to honor the Prophet we've offended against God. That's what I'm trying to say. Okay. So, Bukratan wa asila, that your faith structure is that God this part of 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 tawqir and tasbih is something that you engage in morning and night, meaning constantly. It's not something that ever escapes your mind. Okay. Then we get to ومن أوفى بما عاهد عليه الله فسيؤتيه أجرا عظيما. This is ten. All who pledge their allegiance to you, Muhammad, pledge their allegiance to God. The hand of God is over their hand. Hence, he who breaks his oath breaks it only to his own detriment whereas he who remains true to what he has pledged unto god on him will god bestow the supreme reward so 
this pledge, and later on it would be clear that this is Bayat Rodwan, the pledge under the tree. This pledge is memorializes a reality that there are acts and actions where you are you are in communion with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala directly. So the Prophet ﷺ commented on this ayah with the very famous hadith that if Allah loves a person that if Allah loves a person, Allah becomes this person's sight and hearing and hands. In Sufism, the whole idea of communion with the divine, it is not an exaggeration to say is anchored on the idea that that a human pledge, it's as if the hands of God is touching your hands. Many of the irtiqa that people talk about, they say, I felt the hand of God in my hand. Um, that's sort of an experience that many Sufis or many people who do irtiqa aspire for, is to, 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 to have some form of experience where you feel the hand of God in your hand. Um, Jabir reports that the bay'ah that we took under the acacia tree, that no one went back or violated that pledge, except there's a, a, a fellow, um, I, I, I know that he, I remember his name was Ibn Qais, but what was his first name, um, or his uh, uh, it will come to me, inshallah. But a man called Ibn Qais, who, who uh, when he's, he took the pledge, and then when he saw that people are preparing to actually fight, like they were, you know, starting to see what weapons they have, what, what they can defend themselves with, he, he ran off and hid among uh, the, the cattle. Um, to, to escape, uh, uh, can you, 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 history remembers you as, but it, it shows human frailty, even when you are talking about, you know, this is a man who believed in the dream, joined the pilgrims, marched with them, stay, you know, even took the pledge under the tree, but then when it came to the, to a moment, weakened and chickened out. Humans are humans. You are never immune from the influence of the devil or from satanic influences. There is, you know, it is a fool who believes that they're above it or beyond it. Okay. 
So the pledge is truly, is, this pledge was truly a pledge with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Then Allah takes those who refuse to join this pilgrimage in the first place. This is 11, right? Al-Arab, سَيَقُولُ لَكَ الْمُخَلَّفُونَ مِنَ الْأَرَابِ Normally, this is translated as Bedouin. But Al-Arab here didn't just refer to... Bedouin is a bad translation because it didn't just refer to Bedouins. It, it referred to anyone who was allied to with Medina but lived outside Medina. So it was a generic term. Even if you lived in an actual urbanized town, like mud houses, not tents, you were still referred to as an Arab. So it is the the foreigners, the 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 non-Madinian Muslims. So the so go back. Those non-Madinian Muslims who stayed behind taught, will say that we need to take care of our chattels and our families. And sorry, we need we need to take care of our chattels and our families kept us busy. Do then, Prophet, ask God to forgive us. Thus they will utter with their tongues something that is not in their hearts. What is the significance of this? In part, what is truly remarkable is that this was a prediction. When you guys return to Medina, the people that you asked to join you, who turned you down, Will the the Rifar and and Johanna and, and so on and so forth? Not just these tribes, but many of those who will see that in fact you weren't slaughtered and you came back. Their reaction will come to you. And what is it that they, when it say when when the the Quran says that they're going to say فَاسْتَغْفِرْ لَنَا شَغَلَتْنَا أَمْوَالُنَا وَأَهْلُونَا فَاسْتَغْفِرْ لَنَا they're going to tell you we are so sorry our business our profession our trade our children our families um you know, they, they, they just, it's not that we disbelieved in you. It's not that we doubted you. It's not that we are weak in faith. It's just that we had, you know, reasons, family reasons, business reasons. So what does Istaghfirullah mean? It means what actually happened is that they would say, say I, we want to make sure that you are not mad with us. We want to make sure that God is not mad with us. So Allah is saying that they're going to come to you and they're going to say, okay, well, you know, just make sure, we, we just want to make sure we're okay with you. Because now that they saw that 
it didn't turn out the way they expected it, it's going to turn out. And it is not the Prophet, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that describes them as fake, that they are saying with their tongues what is not in their hearts. The impact of this was people people who had not heard of the revelation of Surah Al-Fatih because they didn't have social media. And, you know, it... it in fact, when the Prophet ﷺ showed up in Medina, in fact, many approached the Prophet saying exactly what Allah said is going to happen. And the, the response of Muslims like Umar ibn al-Khattab and Ali ibn Abi Talib was to recite to them Allah's response, while the Prophet didn't say anything. Allah already said that you're hypocrites. And Allah already said that your citing of personal circumstance is false. Okay. So, بَلْزَنَنْتُمْ أَنْ لَنْ يَنْقَلِبُ الرَّسُولُ وَالْمُؤْمِنِينَ إِلَىٰ أَهْلِهِمْ أَبَدًا وزين ذلك ذلك في قلوبكم وظننتم ظن السوء وكنتم قوما بورا ومن لم يؤمن بالله ورسوله فإن اعتدنا للكافرين سعيرا This is quite harsh because what it says is no in reality Allah knows that what you the reason you didn't join is because you thought that the prophet and the believers will never return that this is the end. This is this is where they're going to get slaughtered. And you refuse what you, what you didn't trust what the prophet told you. When the prophet said that we're going to go and we're going to come back safely, you didn't believe and you didn't trust. Bura is like saying to someone, you are a complete loser. So when Allah describes them, indeed, what you are, you're utter losers, as far as God is concerned. And then, when, and what's really harsh is that then when Allah underscores it, says, and those who don't believe in Allah and the Prophet, what awaits them is true punishment. While the Prophet, when they asked for permission, when they told him we can't join you, didn't say anything, and upon returning from Medina, still didn't say anything. The Quran came and put them in a very tough spot. And a spot now remember they've concluded the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, right? If you are egotistical. Or if you are a proud chief of a tribe, you're the tri- chief of the tribe of Johanna, and the Quran has just called you Bura, a loser. What do you think would likely happen? Put yourself in the position of that, of that chief. 
Oh, you're calling me a loser? Well, I'm going to go join Mecca then. These are the moments, again, if we owned our own tradition, if we actually educated our, our, our people, these are the types of things that, that, that gives you, that tells you the author of this book is not a human being. The prophet's reaction is the reaction of a human being. I don't want to alienate you. I don't want to confront you. But the reaction of the Quran is the reaction of someone who already knows what's going, what's going to unfold. Did some people take exception to the point of going and join Mecca? Absolutely. Was it the majority of people? No. In fact, this harsh discourse, this, this harsh narrative, for some people, woke them up. Okay. And then Allah reminds that the, that the door for forgiveness is open. وَلِلَّهِ مُلْكُ السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ so after Allah exposed them to themselves and told them, you're losers and you're not really believers, but Allah reminds them that I am most merciful and most compassionate and I can forgive you if you seek forgiveness. Okay. Then comes, when I told you Surah Al-Fatih is spectacular because it has predictions. Then it predicts something else that's going to happen that had not happened. Remember, as I said, this was a surah revealed after they, they concluded the treaty and they were on their way back to Medina. Then it says, سَيَقُولُ الْمُخَلَّفُونَ إِذَا انْطَلَقْتُمْ إِلَى مَغَانِمَ لَتَأْخُذُوهَا ذَرُونَا نَتَّبِعْكُمْ وَيُرِدُونَ أَنْ يُبَدِّلُوا كَلَامَ اللَّهِ قُلْ لَنْ تَتَّبِعُونَ كَذَلِكُمْ قَالَ اللَّهُ مِنْ قَبْلُ سَيَقُولُونَ بَلْ تَحْسُدُونَنَا بَلْ كَانُوا لَا يَفْقَهُونَ إِلَّا قَلِيلًا So Allah then predicts something that those same people Allah told the Prophet والسلام, from now on those people who refuse to come and join the pilgrimage may not take part in any future battle that you wage. Now again, if you're a political leader, that makes absolutely no sense. You want people, you want fighters, you want bodies. But that's Allah's ruling. You will not fight with us. Allah doesn't need you. And Allah predicts that there is going to be a battle in which there will be spoils of war that will be very attractive. Now, it turns out that less than a year, in, in fact, around a few months, on the seventh year of Hijrah, the Battle of Khaybar takes place. And 
at a certain point, it becomes clear because of when we get to the Battle of Khaybar, inshallah, and we'll tell its story, it becomes clear that this is a battle that if Muslims win this battle, is going to end with a lot of spoils of war. And Allah predicts that these same tribes and same people will come rushing to you and say, please, please let us join the battle. And you are going to remind them that Allah said, under no circumstance may you join in the battle. Join us in battle. And then they're going to say, you know what? You are just greedy. Because you just want more spoils of war to yourself. You don't want to share with us. Allah is predicting things that will in fact happen exactly that way. And don't listen to them when they tell you that because it's you know it, it, it's an argument that makes you uncomfortable or oh, you're just greedy you just want more for yourself in fact simply that it is enough to say that they have no comprehension these are people without understanding meaning they have no comprehension they have no intellect they have no faith they have no morality so the even even those who repented and were forgiven were still not allowed to join in battle. And indeed, when the battle of Khaybar takes place, subhanAllah, this is exactly many of these folks and tribes eventually come and start begging to join the battle because they they, they get the point that it's poss- it's, it looks like Khaybar is going to fall and there's going to be spoils of war. And of course, when they are told no way, they say, oh, it's just because you're greedy. We, it's not because you're devout, it's just because you're greedy. And again, not you know, literacy was not widespread. A lot of people didn't have a copy of the Quran in their home, far from it. And so citing these verses to these people, as these events transpired in the future, was extremely powerful and had an enormous impact. Okay. Then, there is a further prediction in Surah Al-Fatih that is in verse 16. كل المخلفين من الأعراب ستدعون إلى قوم أولي بأس شديد تقاتلونهم أو يسلمون فإن تطيعوا يؤتكم الله أجرا حسنا وإن تتولوا كما توليتم من قبل يعذبكم عذابا أليما So you will not be allowed to join us in the battle that has spoils of war. There's going to be a battle that has spoils of war. You will not be allowed to join us in this battle. That's your punishment. But there is going to be a battle in the future or battles where there are no spoils of war. Indeed, what there, what exists in these battles are people who are uli ba'sin shadid, 
a very tough enemy. And that will be a real test for you because if you run away, like you ran away in this situation, Allah, that's it. Allah will punish you. If you don't run away, then your status might change vis-a-vis Allah. Now, what, what, where, what, who were those people that Allah described as Udibas and a battle which does not involve spoils of war but involves a tough enemy and high casualties? Some said that this is going to be the battles with Hawazin, Thaqif, Ghatafan. This is these are the tribes that were fought around the Battle of Hunain, which will take place after the Battle of Khaybar. And the description would would seem to fit that they are ulibas and no spoils. Many commentators, however, said it's not likely that it is the Battle of Hunayn. And because of the Quranic expression, that either you will be called to fight them, either fight or they will convert or they will become Muslims, so then they wouldn't fight. Um, some, I mean, some said it's not the Battle of Hunayn and not the, the tribes of Ghatafan and Hawazin and so on, um, because they were not the Udibas, they were not the toughest enemy, and it there is, it was not a dichotomous option between either is either conversion or either Islam, which would end the war, or a fight without a third option. Because in the Battle of Hunayn, there were accommodations where people accepted the paying the jizya, for instance, or entered into a form of sulh with Muslims. Other commentators said no this was a, a description of the battle with the tribe of Abu Hanifa now the battle with the tribe of Abu Hanifa takes place long after the death of the Prophet ﷺ, during the time of Abu Bakr when Musaylama claims to be a prophet he's known as Musaylama Kazab, Musaylama the liar and he leads his tribe of Abu Hanifa into uh, Abu Hanifa had converted to Islam but then left Islam when Musaylama declared himself a prophet and the war with Abu Hanifa would be very costly it's a a war that costed many many Muslim lives uh, many lives of many of the companions that's probably wrong as well Many commentators said that this is a prediction 
for the fact that Islam will eventually clash with the two superpowers, the Persian Empire and the Byzantine Empire. And that when Allah says you are going to be put in a position where you are going to fight a people that are truly scary, and that will be a real test, that this was a reference or a prediction to the fact that eventually this Islamic state is going to clash with, to, with, with the superpowers that exist in the region, the Byzantines and the Persians. And that's probably the most correct, in my opinion at least. Allahu alam, only Allah knows best. But in all cases, the, the fact that you are predicting that there is going to be a battle involving considerable spoils, this is the Battle of Khaybar, and then battle a battle or a set of battles that will involve very tough enemy and very low spoils of war, and that's exactly what, in fact, transpires. Okay. Then, of course, 17, which says that Allah is not blaming those who suffered from a handicap, uh, someone who's blind or someone who's sick, uh, that Allah is talking about those who are able-bodied and they know who they are. Those and and this is, I mean, it, it is. Anyway, I'll come back to this point. So, okay, then one of probably there are certain verses in the Quran that, that are very famous in in or at least used to be famous, Allah Alam what it is now, in Muslim cultures, and verse 18 is probably one of them. لَقَدْ رَضَى اللَّهُ عَنِ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ إِذْ يُبَيْعُونَكَ تَحْتَ الشَّجَرَةِ فَعَلِمَ مَا فِي قُلُوبِهِمْ فَأَنْزَلَ السَّكِينَةَ عَلَيْهِمْ وَأَثَابَهُمْ فَتْحًا قَرِيبًا That, 18, let's go to the translation process. Indeed, God is pleased, was pleased with the believers when they pledged their allegiance to you, Muhammad, under the tree. For God knew that what was in their hearts, and so God bestowed inner peace upon them from on high and rewarded them with the glad tidings of victory soon to come and of many war gains which they would achieve, for God is indeed almighty and wise. This is 19. Okay. And this prediction, by the way, will also be repeated in 20. So maybe we should take 20 as well. So 20. Uh, of you, uh, God... Believers, God has promised you many war gains which you shall yet achieve. And God has vouchsafed vouchsafed you these worldly gains well in advance and has stayed from you the hands of hostile people so that this, your inner strength, may become a symbol to believers who will come after you. 
and that God may guide you all on a straight path. Okay, so first that Allah reminds these believers that when they made, those who made the pledge under the tree, they made the pledge to fight to death, First, Allah calls us again a victory. And, and that victory, so he, he says, that this is a, 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 a prelude to a great victory. And that Allah, that victory, credit goes to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who again gifted Muslims with tranquility, with inner peace. And then Allah predicts that in your future there were going to be a future in which, let's put it this way, that your material situation is going to change. There's going to be a change of fortune which will involve a great deal of economic advantage. Okay. Through all of this, there is a there. Okay, so there is a victory, a promised victories to come that will involve economic advantage. But in what way are the events that unfolded in the Treaty of Hudaybiyah in itself a victory? That's something not clear to Muslims who are living through it. So Allah is telling them. You can't use those who fail you in the near future. There's going to be a future in which you are going to fight a very tough enemy. But before you get to that future, your material situation is going to improve. And it's specifically the material situation of those who proved their loyalty and proved their certitude. Those who confirmed the pledge under the tree. Okay. And even another surprising prediction um, Yeah, um, okay. Yeah, before we get to the other surprising prediction. Note 21. وَأُخْرَى لَمْ تَقْدِرُوا عَلَيْهَا قَدْ أَحَاطَ اللَّهُ بِهَا وَكَانَ اللَّهُ عَلَى كُلِّ شَيْءٍ قَدِيرًا And yet, and there are yet other gains which are still beyond your grasp, but which God has already encompassed for you, for God has the power to will anything. And so there are going to be gains immediately within your grasp, 
and there are going to be gains that are even not imaginable to you. A clear reference to the victory over the Persian Empire and the conquering, winning battles against the Byzantine Empire because it was entirely unimaginable to Muslims at this point. No Arabs for a long time had won a single battle against these two empires for a very long time. And the tone in speaking to the people who proved their loyalty in the events of Hudaybiyah, as you notice, is very different. The tone, you've proved yourself. Now I'm going to tell you about a future that you can't imagine, but that will unfold and will definitely take take place. Okay. And then this, and then a, a, a very surprising prediction that in 22, وَلَوْ قَاتَلُوكُمُ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا لَوَلُّوا الْأَدْبَارِ ثُمَّ لَا يَجِدُونَ وَلِيَّ وَلَا نَصِيرًا So, in fact, Allah tells them that if, in fact, they would have fought you, if, in fact, a battle would have taken place after the Pledge of Allegiance, although you thought it's going to be slaughter, in fact, they would have ran away. They would not have won. So Allah is telling them about something that even didn't take place. And, and they would have lost that fight, which you were sure, in fact, would have ended in your slaughter. Okay. And then Allah reminds them, this, this, is, this is Allah's law. This is, a, this is Allah's decree as to Allah's fate. And there is no change to that. Okay. Something wrong is in, in the okay, so what, twenty years. That's why, okay. Yeah, I thought it was wrong. Okay, oh, uh, no, then I was misreading it because it's actually, why did I imagine that it said, what can Allah look at Yes, okay. So what is this a reference to? First, that God is who in the valley of Mecca stayed their hands from you and your hands from them 
after God has enabled you to vanquish them. And God saw indeed what you were doing. So what this is referring to is to the only violent skirmish that took place at the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. After, um, after the treaty itself was concluded, there were a group of Meccan young hotheads led by Akrama ibn Jahl. Whether there, there is disagreement in the, in the reports whether there were 500 of them or that their number was more like 80 uh, young men it's in, in it's probably it's 80 is probably more the accurate number than 500 500 seems too high um but anyway 80 or or, or around 80 uh young men after the treaty was concluded snuck to up to the muslim camp and around a a, a small mountain called Jabal al-Tan'im, which, I mean, of course, you could, it still exists, you could visit it. Um, at Fajr prayer, waited until Muslims woke up for Fajr prayers and then attempted to launch a surprise attack against Muslims. Now, of course, the idea is that they're going to attack Muslims as they're praying, unarmed, so that they would be able to slaughter them. The surprise was that they weren't able to slaughter the Muslims. In fact, Muslims routed them, defeated them, and captured them. And then the Prophet ﷺ forgave them and released them. So this is what Allah here is referring to. And notice again what Allah is saying about it. That it is God who generally, it is God who intervened to prevent a slaughter. So the fact that you weren't slaughtered, Muslims, is because of God's intervention. And it is God who allowed you to beat those who attacked you, referring to these 80 led by Akrama ibn Jahl. And it is God who placed forgiveness in your heart towards them. So that although they've committed, according to the pra practices of Arabia, what uh, attacked by Ghurra. Ghurra means it's, it, it's attacked by treachery because a treaty was concluded, and you come and you sneak and you want to attack people in the back, according to Arab customs, they would, they could be executed. It would be, be the law that they would be executed. Yet Muslims felt nothing but forgiveness towards them, and, if you, and just released them. And Allah says to them that after Allah allowed you to, to prevail over them, 
that Allah put forgiveness in your hearts towards them so that you forgave them. And then 25, which again, like Surah Al-Fatih, is full of surprises. So Allah says, Allah knows that they are the ones that who would not allow you to visit Al-Masjid Al-Haram. And that they sadduqum on al-Masjid al-Haram. That they would not allow you either to perform the Umrah and they would not even allow you to distribute the meat of the animals that you brought along to slaughter. And that ultimately you ended up slaughtering the animals in an area that was outside the Haram, outside Mecca, and outside where the meat would be properly distributed to those who need it. But then Allah explains the reason for the fact that uh, although Allah told them that if they would have fought you, they would have you would have actually defeated them. That Allah is telling Muslims that those Qurayshis don't have the will to fight anymore. Don't have the spirit to fight anymore. The surprising thing is the explanation as to why although you would have in fact defeated Quraysh, why Allah didn't want, didn't want a fight and didn't want an invasion. And Allah says that there are believing men and women Quraysh or Mecca is full of believing men and women who are concealing their faith and if you would have invaded Mecca you would have ended up unintentionally hurting them and and the expression here, that the shame of having, eventually you would have realized that you've killed or hurt a fellow Muslim. And the shame, the, the, the psychological shame of having done so would have defeated you. so much to reflect on so i mean because you have to take this and you have to compare it always to any age you are in as a muslim if muslims now kill fellow muslims would they feel a ma'arra for the rest of their lives allah is saying that unintentionally the fact that you would have unintentionally caused fellow Muslims harms, this would been have been a ma'arra, something that you wouldn't have been able to just get rid of or wash away. So Allah, now, 
Now, I'll, I'll, I'll get to this verse and then let's take a break for uh, a two minute break. That while those, it's as if an explanation to why these people have lost, don't no longer have the heart to fight, while you have a very different situation. These people have hamiyat jahiliya. What animates them, what motivates them, is these jahili loyalties. No real conviction, no real cause, no real purpose, but simply a inherited notions of what they are about. While you Muslims, you have Allah's sakina, Allah's gifted sakina, and you have kalimat taqwa very difficult to translate but okay so let's see how Muhammad as translates it 26 uh on the the truth harbor some the state of their heart just some the strain of jahiliyyah while God stout on high God inner peace upon God apostle and believers and bow to them okay so and Muhammad as translates as and bound them to the spirit of God consciousness for they were most worthy of the divine gift and deserved it. And God has full knowledge of all things. God, kalimat al-taqwa, it is God consciousness. But it is like saying, is that you held stood fast in this context to a principled position. You are the reason you took Bayat al Rudwan, you took that Pledge of Allegiance. The reason you marched with the Prophet to do the pilgrimage and put yourself in this position. The reason that you are in the position that you're in now is because of a principled conviction anchored in God consciousness now this, this, again just bear this in mind because I'm going to come back to it because this is really important to the entire message of Surah Al-Fatiha okay let, let's take a two minute break Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Okay. So, then, so Allah warns us, told us, that those who are 
acting, those who are animated, because of Hamiyat al-Jahiliya, because of causes that have nothing to do with a principled position of God consciousness. They are on the losing end of things. Those who are animated by tribal causes, financial causes, nationalistic causes, family causes, all the possible causes that are not a principled position in God consciousness. Then, at this point, Allah returns to the vision that the Prophet ﷺ had and informs Muslims. لَقَدْ صَدَقَ اللَّهُ وَرَسُولَهُ الرُّؤْيَا بِالْحَقِّ This vision was actually truthful. And Allah tells Muslims, not only was this vision is truthful, but in fact, لَتَدْخُلُنَّ الْمَسْجِدَ الْحَرَامَ الْشَاءَ اللَّهِ آمِنِينَ You will enter the holy mosque in security and safety. فَعَلِمَ مَا لَمْ تَعْلَمُوا فَجَعَلَ مِن دُونِ ذَلِكَ فَتْحًا قَرِيبًا Because Allah knows what you don't know. And that was the manifest victory. And Allah informs him at this point that in not only this, but Allah has sent this prophet بِالْهُدَى وَدِينَ الْحَقِّ لِيُظِرَهُ عَلَى الدِّينِ كُلِّهِ وَكَفَى بِاللَّهِ شَهِيدًا that God sent forth God's apostle with the task of spreading guidance and the religion of truth to the end that God make, will make it prevail over every false religion and none can bear witness to the truth as God, as God does. Okay. Before we get to the final ayah, here is the message of Surah Al-Fatih. First, there is a manifest victory, and the manifest victory will come not through battle, but through, in fact, what you don't know, the, the opportunity for you to spread the faith peacefully through security and safety. But in order to spread the faith in this way, you need that sakina, that inner peace, that inner strength. You need to be people who are willing and able to pledge Bayat al-Rudwan, to pledge 
your entire life that in principle you are willing to pledge to to fight to the death it's not that allah in fact wants you to fight to the death but wants you to have that inner attitude to willing to sacrifice everything and it is when you are in that position of strength and certitude and confidence and tranquility when you interact with others that will be the manifest victory because more people will enter islam than before any other time and this is precisely why this is consistently the 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 the, the, the treaty of hudaybia was this was described as a greater victory than any other victory that muslims ever achieved because as zuhri says that people would that that muslims were able to interact peacefully with people that they've never interacted before with before and spread the islamic message upon the conclusion of hudaybiyah and while you were heading back to medina you thought you were defeated but what you thought was a defeat was in fact the greatest victory that you've ever achieved you just didn't know it but here is the thing and here is the very critical point of surah al-fatih not on your time on god's time not on your time on god's time you don't know what is a victory and what is not a victory there are things in life that happens to you which you think were horrible you think were disastrous you think were the worst thing that ever happened to you but indeed they could be the best thing that ever happened to you you shouldn't worry about whether it's the best thing or the worst thing what you should worry about is your certitude in allah in your relationship with allah are you those among among those who pledge with allah's hands on their hand if you are among those who's effectively extending your hand and saying allah put your hand in my hand my pledge is with you and i my certitude in you is absolute and complete and i am willing to sacrifice anything for you then allah removes from you the burden of having to worry is this the best thing that happened to me or the worst thing that happened to me it is an un allah's time what you think was the worst thing could in fact be the best thing now if you are motivated by jahili issues by your career by your family by your reputation 
then you're on your own. Then Fatahna Laka Fathan Mubina doesn't include you. So when Allah says Inna Fatahna Laka Fathan Mubina, that could be you. If you are I we I've made given you a manifest victory. It depends. Are you one of those people who would follow the Prophet ﷺ, who would accept this treaty, who would make that pledge, who would have that type of absolute belief and trust and surrender? Or do you relegate your affairs to your own jahili causes? Now, look at how Surah Al-Fatih ends. Muhammadun Rasulullah wal-lazina ma'ahu ashudda'u ala kuffar ruhama'un baynahum tarahum rukka'an sujjada yabtaguna fadlan min Allahi wa ridwana simahum fi wujuhim min athari sujood thalika mathaluhum fi al-tawrati wa mathaluhum fi al-injil كزرع أخرج شطأه فآزره فاستغلص فاستوى على سوقه يعجب الزراع ليغيظ بهم الكفار وعد الله الذين آمنوا وعملوا الصالحات منهم مغفرة وأجرا عظيما. Allah draws a picture, a picture for us to reflect upon. and to try to replicate. Muhammad, Allah knows, not all those with Muhammad but those who accompanied him in the pilgrim, who entered in the pledge of Bayatul Rudwan, there are, if you will, conditions When, as vis-a-vis one another, they act as if one body. There are many reports that comment on this verse that says that after the revelation of this ayah, the, that group around the Prophet that core group, every time they would meet each other, they would hug and kiss. Because they get the point that they act, they their 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 feeling towards one another is that we are one. Because what com- what what connects us to one another is not hamiyat jahiliya, is not the 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 prejudices of blind ignorance, but a true conviction and a true commitment. And a true understanding that what unites us is a, div- is a pledge with the divine that Allah's hand is on top of our hands. So this is the communitarian, the community aspect is one. Two, that they are in constant state of worship. 
ركعا سجدا يبتغون فضلا من الله ورضوانا and what they aspire for is not to compete with one another is not to carry favor but Allah's favor now three سيماهم في وجوههم من أثر السجود Many commentators said that this doesn't refer to a spot or a mark that appears on your forehead from all the prayers. It refers to the light, to the nur, that from those who truly worship Allah, Allah grants them a nur, a light. That's that simahum fi wujuhim. Now, and Allah then gives you an example to reflect upon and tells you that this has always been part of Allah's message to humanity. The way that people like this sprout goodness is the way seeds, seed spreads on earth. And there is some commentaries by companions upon this. I would say that these, the seed that spreads on earth could fall in Al Ard al Jarda, that it could fall in arid land, land that is not fertile. But if the speed seed spreads wide enough and is persistent enough, it will eventually hit the Ard al-Tayyibah. It will eventually hit fertile land. And when it hits fertile land, it grows and reproduces further seed that spreads to further lands. So, many Quranic commentators said that the ideal way that the true faith by the truly faithful spread Islam is precisely like that. It is as if the seed of Islam in search for an Ard al-Tayyibah, for the fertile ground. Now, this opens up volumes. So, for instance, among the things that you could reflect upon, if we Muslims don't function like this seed is the fault in the land or the fault in the seed is the fault that we are not like Muhammad that we don't if how can you spread the love of Allah if you don't love one another as Muslims 
how could you spread the Islamic faith if what animates you is Hamiyat al-Jahiliya? That what animates you is not a true understanding of what Allah is and what the Prophet is and what Islam is, but your allegiance to your own cultural values. That you grew up understanding Islam the Palestinian way or the Jordanian way or the Egyptian way, and that's what you want. How could you spread the message of Islam if ultimately your loyalties are to material things, not to principles, not to God consciousness? How could you be this dara that Allah, it's as if the, these plants growing and sprouting, if you fundamentally don't understand that it is not on your time, but God's time, that you think you are going to define what's a victory and what's a loss. The difference is there are people who look to the end result and that's all they care about. Am I achieving the goals that I've set? And there are people who look to the principles that they're committed to, regardless of the result. It's the second. That as long as you act per these principles, you say to Allah, I trust in the fate that you hand me, in the fate that you give me. I trust that it is the best for what for me, whatever it is, that your fatah is defined by you, not by me. I repeat that the message from Surah Al-Fatah is that if you're truly a believer, it is on God's time, not yours. You learn the 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 what true surrender is. Things that you believe are the worst thing that could have happened to you might be actually the very best things that ever happened to you. It is in Allah's hands, not yours. And that is Surah Al-Fatih. Walhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Okay, um, Rahim. Um, Alhamdulillah, I think as we get closer and closer to the end, it's, um, it's, it's so powerful and um, you just feel like you, SubhanAllah, I mean, it's like Allah has given us so much in this surah and even in the surah before, like with Surah Al-Hajj, was, I was so struck with this notion that um, it's just about justice, right? God settles the difference between all of us. It's not about us fighting about our, you know, differences and who we are and what we are. And then with this surah, it, it adds to that just, again, the, the total idea of surrender principle. I mean, it's like a lot of this, uh, obviously we've covered the same themes and the same, um, you know, the same um, commands, but when it it's like when it all comes together symphonically and is becomes more clear I mean maybe it's just because we're now so further into this journey um, 
it, it just, it's so powerful. Even like what we talked about at the very beginning, this Islamophobia study where people have doubt and, you know, they're ingesting Islamophobia and you start and you ask yourself, how can you, how can you um, emerge from this if you don't love either your brother, you don't love, you don't have certainty, you continue to have doubt. Um, it's like all the tools that are provided for us to achieve victory and it all comes back to trusting in God and believing in God and you know even letting go of um, all of the things that we return to that like you know in your khutbah you said yesterday when things get hard do you retreat to you know your your family your your material um, ambitions your nationalism you know whatever it may be or do you turn the other way and just focus on God it's again the you know the power of the same message coming at you from different angles and it's just so clear it's like either you're with God with the divine with the hand of God with this message and you know that's very clear and straightforward or you're kind of on your own in this other material jahili you know um, anxious doubtful land um, so it's alhamdulillah, um, truly alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah um, to you for investing your entire life to uncover all of this and to present it to us in a way that we can understand it and really, you know, think about how to apply it in our lives. Um, I mean, I don't know how else we would have been able to access this. Um, and alhamdulillah that, you know, for everything that Allah has brought us to, um, to get here, to understand, to learn. And may we, inshallah, um, truly uh, ingest the lessons and uh, internalize what, what we need to do. Um, I think since we are, um, you know, we didn't do Q&A for Surah Al-Hajj, and we didn't do Q&A, and we're not gonna have time to do that this time. We can talk about what we will combine both. Um, and I guess, I don't know if we wanna dedicate the next halakha session to just Q&A. We can talk about that offline, but um, but for the purposes of, of tonight, we will just conclude here and say alhamdulillah. Thank you Let's so assume much. the next halakha should be Q&A for both. For students. both, yeah. okay. Can I going to discuss something? You were going to talk about the prophetic witnessing. Should we save that for the Q&A? Oh, yeah. Save it for the Q&A. Okay. okay. All right. So in the meantime, um, please collect your questions. Send them to me, graceatasuli.org, for both Surah Al-Hajj and for um, Surah Al-Fat. And I, I'm sure it's going to be an incredible Q&A. So thank you, everybody, for joining us. Um, alhamdulillah for these wonderful gatherings. Um, they're just out of this world. <laughs> There's no words. So thank you so much. And inshallah, we will see you. Have a wonderful week. We will see you next week, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum.